savage rape dishonor slaughter and slavery of hindu women slaying hindus alive wholesale slaughter of men women children and infants forcibly converting hindus en masse or killing those who refuse to convert throwing half dead people into wells with no chance to escape so these poor half dead victims had to struggle for hours literally hours till they finally died basically gandhi's support to the khilafat movement can be captured in just one sentence no matter how outrageous no matter how extreme hindus had to meekly blindly accept every single demand of the muslims even if it meant their death our sense of history must be integrated and unbroken in order for us to make sense of both the past and the present and hopefully draw some lessons for the future mopla genocide of uh, malabar hindus so my objective here is to give a kind of overview of the mopla genocide of hindus uh because this is a largely forgotten tragic chapter of comparatively recent history and uh, we need to spend some time trying to understand the stuff the processes all the events that led to it so from that perspective i have divided my lecture into five broad categories so the first is the historical backdrop that led to this and the second is to give a very very brief uh, account of the upheavals during the british colonial era and the third i'll talk about uh, some facets of the indian freedom struggle with particular emphasis on the role played by ali brothers and mohandas karamchand gandhi the fourth i'll give you some specific details about the actual mopla genocide and fifth i'll conclude by uh, giving a few tidbits of the kind of um, civilizational lessons that we can take from the mopla genocide of hindus so the first thing to note about um, today's topic is to correctly call it by its real name <clears throat> as most of you are aware and uh, this is what our history textbooks also say from childhood it talks about something called a mopla rebellion that's all they say that there is some kind of a random mopla rebellion this is what the textbooks tell us but the correct name and the full name is the mopla genocide of malabar hindus so who are the moplas or who were the moplas the term mopla is actually an english corruption uh, mispronunciation or rather a english pronunciation of a malayalam term called mapilla which literally means son in law damad the origins of the mapillas or moplas can be traced back to the roughly the 8th or the 9th century uh, during which period kerala's malabar coast had a thriving uh, trade and commercial links uh, with the arabs so over the centuries and with continuous interaction with the arab merchants and other people from that region some malabar hindus were either forcibly converted to islam and in many many cases arab merchants who had 
permanently settled in Malabar eventually began to marry Hindu women. This is how they got the name Maapilla, which means son-in-law, as I just said. So, over the course of time, the Arabs lost their hold over trade and commerce in the Malabar region and they were overtaken by the Portuguese and fast forward to the 18th or the 19th century, the Maapilas had spread to various parts of Kerala but they were mostly concentrated in the Malabar region and uh, because their status as former rich traders and merchants had declined, they began to look for other jobs. Some of them became uh, mercenaries and uh, fighters for hire. Some people worked for Hindu zamindars. They worked in the fields. They did manual labor. Uh, and during, uh, <clears throat> if you remember some points from my uh, earlier lecture on Tipu Sultan, when he invaded the uh, Malabar and you know completely burned it to the ground, he forcibly took some Maapilas along with him and resettled them in Kurg because Kurg was at that time 100% Hindu, that is the Kodavas. Uh, he forcibly resettled the Maapilas in Kurg in order to enforce a demographic change, to use today's uh, terminology. Even today, we have a separate uh, category of people in Kurg who are known as Kodava Maapillas, which means Maapillas belonging to Kurg. In spite of the fact that there is no word called Maapilla in either Kannada or in the Kodava language. This happened during Tipu's time. So by the early and the mid 19th century, the Maapillas had become a recurring source of trouble, concern and a perpetual danger for the Malabar Hindus especially living in the villages because they were constantly raiding, you know, unexpected plundering, kidnapping Hindu women, raping them, rest of the stuff. So, which is why the colonial British administration kept an extremely close watch on the Maapilas, especially during the period known as the Maapila outbreaks. Now, this is another mischievous term, Maapila outbreak. We don't know what the hell that really means. What do you mean an outbreak? What do you mean an outbreak that lasted for nearly a century? What does it even mean? So we'll come to that uh, as we go on. Thanks. So this so-called outbreak, it lasted roughly for a century, beginning uh, sometime in 1836, and culminating in 1921, the precise year of the Mopla genocide of Hindus. So this, I hope. Uh, as a brief historical background to set the context for today's discussion and now uh, we can directly jump to the subject. The year is 1918 and the destructive First World War is almost ending. And one of the most important milestones that marked the end of the First World War was something called the Armistice of Mudros, which was signed on 30th October 1918. Miodros is a small town in Greece today, but it used to be an important naval base for uh, several centuries, including the First World War. And this armistice of Miodros, or a treaty, marked the end of the hostilities between the Allied forces and the Turkish Ottoman Empire. 
one of the important conditions of the armistice of Mudros was the partitioning of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, also known as the Ottoman Caliphate. The actual partition occurred in something called the Treaty of Severus, which was signed in August 1920 in a porcelain factory in the town of Severus in France. This treaty eventually gave rise to the new independent nations, which are since come to be known as Syria, Lebanon and Yemen, among other small nation states in that region. So with this treaty, with this armistice, the 400 year long Turkish Caliphate or the Ottoman Caliphate or the Ottoman Empire came to a crashing end. So the Sultan who was ruling uh, during that time when the treaty was signed was somebody named Sultan Muhammad VI. Uh, according to the terms of the armistice, he was allowed to merely retain his position and his title but was virtually powerless. So something else was happening during this time. The people of Turkey, the ordinary citizens of Turkey, saw this armistice as a great national humiliation and they held this Sultan responsible for it. And they directed their anger against the Sultan and this was this movement as it intensified, uh, Mustafa Kemal Pasha became the head of the leader of this movement. Uh, so the Sultan panicked and he rang up his uh, uh, cousin named Abdul Majid and overnight he declared that Abdul Majid is the Caliph or the Khalifa of whatever was left of the Ottoman Empire. He, that was his desperate hope to kind of, you know, quell the anger of his citizens. But this move only backfired against him in a very bad way because by that time, the entire Muslim world in that region, including the Arabs and some in Egypt, had completely rejected the Caliph's authority and this is where our story really begins. So the abolition of the Ottoman Caliphate caused a massive shock in the most unlikely place on the earth, India. India, not an independent India, which was then the colony of the Imperial British. But more specifically in India, it caused panic in an extremely influential section of Indian Muslims. To these Muslims, the abolition of the Ottoman Empire, they felt like almost the earth had opened up under them and was threatening to swallow them. So this is where it becomes important for all of us to have what I call a sense of history. And uh, there's no greater error than looking at history in isolation, looking at it, historical events in a fragmented piecemeal uh, fashion. Our sense of history must be integrated and unbroken in order for us to make sense of both the past and the present and hopefully draw some lessons for the future. So coming back to the present context, this sense of history also reveals an important truth. The truth is the significance of the Ottoman Caliphate for the Indian Muslims of those days. So we need to ask this question, obvious question, why was the Caliphate so important to Indian Muslims even when the Arab world had rejected the Caliphate so thoroughly. 
Why was it so important for Indian Muslims? So the answer to this question dates back all the way to Muhammad bin Qasim, the first alien Muslim invader to conquer Sindh. And then all of us know all the successive waves of uh, alien Muslim invaders who established uh, Muslim empires in different parts of India of different sizes, all the way up to the Mughals, all the way up to Aurangzeb and of course Tipu Sultan. So without exception, all Muslim Sultans swore loyalty to the Caliph. Remember that the Caliph had sponsored the early invaders, uh, funded their armies. They said, we are going to conquer Hindustan and put the sword of Islam here. So all of these Sultans, they swore loyalty to the Khalifa for at, and for at least six centuries, they sent him annual tributes in the form of money, gold, jewelry, horses, and even women and slaves because that Middle East region had a thriving slave market. So, and some of the sultans also minted coins in India bearing the name of the Khalifa. Uh, the Caliph also played an extremely central role in the Muslim Ummah, which means the global Muslim Brotherhood, because he was not a mere political leader. The Khalifa was also seen as the religious protector and enforcer of Islam in the world, wherever Muslims were there in the world. This was the centrality and the role of enjoyed by the Khalifa. So, uh, to put it in a different fashion, the term Khalifa or Caliph also means that he is a Khalifa, the protector of Islam, and not just and not just the Khalifa of the Ottoman Turks. So his reach was global, his authority was kind of universal if you want to uh, take their version of it. But uh, with a comprehensive uh, disintegration of the Mughals after Aurangzeb died, the Muslim leadership in India noticed with great sadness that their magnificent project of Islamizing all of Hindustan was systematically coming apart. Even to this day, and I don't, uh, I'm not making this up, even to this day in both Pakistan and India, the lament among a significant section of Muslim leadership is the death of Aurangzeb. In fact, one of the tactics uh, that the British had used to ensure the loyalty of Muslims towards them was to convince the Muslims that they, the Muslims, were the real rulers of Hindustan and that we, the British, are your protectors. Without us, your Islam will go. You are the real rulers of Hindustan and if we move out of the scene, the barbaric Hindus will wipe you out. This was one of the tactics that the British used to keep their loyalty. And so when the armistice of Mudros ended the Ottoman Caliphate, it also made the Indian Muslims extremely nervous and very, very angry. So what did they do? They decided to do something about it. And what was that something? It begins roughly in 1919, when a man named Muhammad Ali Jauhar led a delegation of Indian Muslims to London. He petitioned and no, he didn't petition. He demanded the British government to restore the caliphate and obviously it was a colonial British government. They laughed at him and threw his demand in the dustbin. So 
obviously mohammad ali jauhar was very very angry at this kind of rejection and uh, from this rejection something called a khilafat committee was born the demand of the khilafat committee was straightforward a complete boycott and protest against the british government in india until the caliphate was restored so it is clear that from the very beginning there was nothing nationalistic there was nothing patriotic or there was nothing indian about the khilafat committee its ultimate goal was to serve a pan islamic cause and all means all methods all tactics were completely valid nothing was out of bounds so this is a brief story of the origin of what later became the khilafat movement mohammad ali jauhar or mohammad ali along with his elder brother shaukat ali jauhar or shaukat ali came to be popularly known as the ali brothers the ali brothers planned led and executed the khilafat movement from the front now mohammad ali was no ordinary guy he was educated both in the islamic uh, whatever education system and then he went to oxford got educated there took his higher education came back here he served as some kind of a bureaucrat in the baroda uh, government uh, before uh, he was also one of the founder presidents of the all india muslim league which all of you know was directly responsible for partition so both ali brothers played a pioneering role in expanding the influence of the aligarh muslim university and the jamia milia islamia which regularly sends journalists to our tv studios their graduates come to occupy our tv studios so this is how they came to prominence this is how these institutions were built so by the time the ali brothers launched the khilafat committee their authority in the muslim community in the muslim leadership was nearly unchallenged but the ali brothers spent two frustrating years from the rejection in 1919 to 1921 but they did not get disheartened they toured all of india trying to enlist nationwide support for the khilafat cause but uh, they met with little success among the masses then what happened suddenly unconditional support came from extremely un- unexpected quarters this support was what transformed the khilafat committee into the khilafat movement it was just a committee then it became a movement all thanks to this one major unconditional support and the name of this support is mohandas karamchand gandhi so gandhi's support was like a booster dose for the khilafat movement and uh, because mohammad ali the ali brothers now had the support of a significant mass of hindus till then muslims had blindly sided with them obviously but now this booster dose came in the form of significant mass support from hindus those hindus who blindly trusted gandhi's words thinking that they were actually supporting the freedom struggle against the british so some of the stuff and i was going through the uh, primary uh, records and it's available everywhere on the internet also some of the stuff that gandhi said in praise of uh, mohammad ali reads like a steamy romantic novel there's one example when he first meets uh, mohammad ali and i quote gandhi's words 
when i met muhammad ali uh, no when i met maulana muhammad ali for the first time it was love at first sight no <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing this is what gandhi has written it's recorded <laughs> so but uh, while gandhi thought that he was using muhammad ali to achieve something called hindu muslim uni unity muhammad ali was extremely clear from day one about his objectives while he was busy seducing gandhi uh, he he also kept the muslim community in a constant state of preparedness for war and he developed an extensive network of imams maulanas mullahs and other muslim religious preachers throughout the country remember this was undivided india the part that we lost uh, uh, to pakistan is 33% of undivided india throughout this vast landmass ali brothers were successfully cultivating an extraordinary network so from lahore to malabar the message and the intent on their part was very clear be prepared for aggression at any time so you must read the entire account written by muhammad ali himself various speeches and pamphlets and stuff like that it will be clear the level of planning and the precise steps for execution was truly extraordinary so in the summer of 1920 the ali brothers launched a series of conferences meetings and highly provocative public speeches addressed to the muslim community in various parts of india to restore the khilafat so i'll give a couple of examples to show the uh, mood of that period so it was march 1920 and the location is maligaon the same maligaon maharashtra a khilafat subcommittee is formed there a local chapter of khilafat is formed there and a body of volunteers was attached to that committee and the committee's activities uh, were divided into two parts part 1 a series of wazas or islamic sermons part 2 enlisting door to door support for the khilafat movement this door to door support included going knocking on the doors of hindus the threat was unsaid your great leader gandhi is with us will you be with us or no so and both 1 and 2 were hugely successful but uh, the local authority appointed by the british was uh, somebody known as a resident magistrate his name was mr thakkar and uh, he noted that with each day the tone tenor ferocity and violence in the speeches was escalating and so he decided to do something about it after a particular round of highly provocative speech mr thakkar convicted six islamist preachers on april 25 1920 here is what happened next and i quote from the original this is by uh, um c shankaran nair uh, he talks in detail about uh, the various consequences that happened both Uh, up to the build up to the khilafat and including the mopla genocide so i quote a muslim mob quickly collected and gave vent to their feelings by loud cries of allahu akbar 
This was a war cry used by the mob throughout the riot. They assaulted all the police to be found in the town of Malaygaon, burned a temple, killed a sub-inspector of police and threw his body into the fire and looted the houses of all who were opposed, opposed to the Khilafat movement. All the Hindu owners had fled in the meantime. So in a short span, what happened in Malaygaon slowly began to spread. The next incident, a similar incident was repeated in Barabanki in uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, where almost the entire Hindu community was barbarically targeted. As usual, shops were looted, houses were burned, men were slaughtered, women were raped. The idea on the part of the Ali brothers was to keep these flames fanned continuously. There should be no letdown in the provocation. In one revealing speech, Muhammad Ali said the following and I quote, If the Afghans invaded India to wage a holy war, the Indian Mohammedans are not only bound to fight them, but also to fight the Hindus if they refuse to cooperate with them. Now, how different is this from Tipu Sultan's letter to Afghan King Zaman Shah inviting him to invade India and launch a holy war? How different is it? So, in fact, Shaukat Ali travelled far down to Srirangapattana. He visited Tipu Sultan's Darga. He prayed to him for strength. And after the prayer, he made this speech. I've given a brief extract. We have come here to Srirangapattana on a pious pilgrimage. It includes a visit to the sacred grave of Tipu Sultan. He is our national hero. So who celebrates uh, Tipu Sultan today as a national hero and freedom fighter? Think about it. The Khilafat conference that happened in Karachi on 9th July 1921. In another public speech, Muhammad Ali urged the serving Muslim soldiers in the British army in the following words. This meeting clearly proclaims that it, that it is in every way religiously unlawful for a Muslim at the present moment to continue in the British army or to induce others to join the army and it is the duty of all Muslims in general and the ulemas in particular to see that these religious commandments are brought home to every Muslim in the army and to declare an independent Muslim republic after the Congress session in December 1921 in Ahmedabad. Please remember this note about the December 1921 Congress session of Ahmedabad. I'll come to this later. So, but the British kept a continuous and tight watch on the activities of the Ali brothers and after this speech, which was an incitement to rebellion in the army, no government will tolerate that. After this speech, the government immediately put both Ali brothers in, in jail and the judge who sentenced them to imprisonment said, Muhammad Ali and Shaukat Ali maintained that first their religion compels them to do certain acts. Secondly, that no law which restrains them from doing those acts which their religion compels them to do have any validity. I'll break it down, uh, it's dated English, so I'll break it down. 
the import is clear as daylight. In other words, the Ali brothers and their message to the Muslim community was this. You should obey no law other than the law of Allah. All man-made laws have no validity. This was the message. So, and while all this was happening, should we really believe that Gandhi was actually unaware of the ongoing massacres, you know, slaughters of innocent Hindus in Malaygaon, in Barabanki and other places? Do we really believe that Gandhi was not aware of all this? It was happening in front of his own eyes, so to say. So, but what was he doing? The answer, he was busy chasing the mirage called Hindu-Muslim unity at any cost, number one. And in speech after speech, in article after article, he praised the Ali brothers. He parroted their lies about the Khilafat movement. But actually, let me quote Shankaran Nair, who was an eyewitness to this era. He was uh, Gandhi's contemporary. And... Uh, I'll quote him. So far as Gandhi was concerned, the position is quite clear. He puts forward whichever is the most extreme demand made by the Khilafat party without any inquiry as to its reasonableness. In applying the gospel of non-violence to politics, he has shown himself a babe and his interference has been generally mischievous. I am satisfied that Gandhi is using all of them to further his own ends, an attempt in which he is bound to fail. History has shown how precisely prophetic and accurate uh, Shankaran Nair was. Show me one project that Gandhi touched and succeeded. So in fact, and it, it only gets worse, Gandhi went so far as to say that he fully supported the Ali brothers' cause of the Muslim, not just the Khilafat, he said publicly in numerous times that he supported the Ali brothers cause of Muslim Ummah and he urged Hindus to support them. Gandhi also said, it's, it's ridiculous when you read all these documents now. Gandhi also said that Palestine must be incorporated into Turkey. But Turkey itself was imploding, he wanted Palestine to be incorporated into Turkey just to please the Ali brothers. So. And then in the specific context of the Khilafat movement, he laid down the following rules and conditions to Hindus. Uh, I have what? One, two, three, four, five. Okay, five conditions. Condition one. Hindus must not insist on the prohibition of cow slaughter by Muslims. Condition two. Hindus must abandon learning Hindi and learn either Hindustani or Urdu or Farsi. Condition number three, Hindus must not carry processions in front of mosques. Condition four, Hindus must not play bhajans, kirtans, etc. if it offends Muslims. And if Muslims attack Hindus unprovoked, Hindus must gladly submit to them by brave appeals to the goodness of the hearts of Muslims and they must not retaliate. Five conditions. So, but... Basically, Gandhi's support to the Khilafat movement can be captured in just one sentence. No matter how outrageous, no matter how extreme, Hindus had to meekly, blindly accept every single demand of the Muslims, even if it meant their death. So, let me put it bluntly, 
Mr. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi was directly responsible for the Mopla genocide of Hindu Simbala. So now uh, we come to the actual event that is the, uh, some details of the genocide. The, ar the arrest of the Ali brothers had the desired impact and the two-year-old planning preparations were ready to reach some kind of a climax. The Muslim violence that had begun in Malaygaon and Barabanki now slowly spread all the way to various parts of Bengal, Bihar, Punjab and it reached its savage finale in Malabar. But there's a short backstory to how this developed. So even as Gandhi was coaxing and encouraging to uh, Hindus to support the Khilafat movement, the Malabar Hindus were not fooled by his uh, tactics. This is a very important point. They saw through his uh, blind, you know, appeal for Hindu-Muslim unity and they were not fooled by it. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of my lecture, Malabar Hindus had centuries worth of experience in actually living with the Mopla Muslims who were notorious as usual for their unprovoked violence, kidnapping women and burning and looting and the rest of the stuff. <clears throat> so, meanwhile in Kerala, like in elsewhere, the Mopla Muslims followed the example of their Muslim brothers elsewhere in India and they thought that the Malabar Hindus could be bullied like they were bullied in Malaygaon. They thought that in the same way, the Malabar Hindus could also be bullied and uh, lend their support to the cause of Khilafat. But the Hindus flatly refused to support the Khilafat cause. But what was worse on the part of Hindus was that they naively believed, they innocently trusted that, okay, fine, we have refused to support your cause. You go, you fight your own battles independently. You have enough men, you have your leadership. We, won't, we don't want to be any part of that. So you fight your battles independently. And they thought the Mopla Muslims would leave them alone. But the Moplas interpreted this in a different way. They thought that this refusal by the Hindus was the perfect excuse to declare war. On whom? Not on British, on Hindus. So the inflammatory speeches, you know, the, the uh, violent pamphlets that Ali brothers have printed, circulated all over India and by other Khilafat leader, leaders, it had also made sure that the Moplas were armed and ready but the Malabar Hindus didn't even have the faintest clue about this. That manufactures swords, all kinds of weapons, knives, everything that can be used as a weapon in, in a war. So, but the uh, Malabar Hindus didn't even have the slightest clue about this. So, they were totally caught off guard on 20 August 1921. What happened next? does not make for easy reading. So I've condensed most of the stuff in the form of a few uh, bullet points. The Mopla genocide of Malabar Hindus was a nightmare that lasted for nearly two months continuously. So first I'll give you a list of the main features of this brutal genocide and then I'll give a few examples, some precise details of the horror that actually uh, took place. One. Savage rape, dishonor, slaughter and slavery of Hindu women, flaying Hindus alive, 
wholesale slaughter of men, women, children and infants, forcibly converting Hindus en masse or killing those who refuse to convert, throwing half-dead people into wells with no chance to escape. So these poor half-dead victims had to struggle for hours, literally hours, till they finally died. And uh, there also evolved a special technique. They would capture all these Hindus and they would make them dig ditches, their own graves, kill them and bury them alive or bury them alive. Then uh, burning and looting practically all uh, Hindu houses. In this act, even the Mopla women and children took part. It was not the men who did this. I mean, they were obviously the uh, forefront, but the women also took the spoils of this, uh, whatever you want to call it, war or uh, thing is that when Hindu women and girls, they took off their garments that they were wearing because they were expensive. And uh, yeah, in short, in a very brief span of time, the whole non-Muslim population there was reduced to becoming beggars. Obviously, desecrating, destroying numerous temples, killing cows within the temple compound, pulling out their intestines and then garlanding, garlanding it on the murtis and they would display the hanging the skulls of the slaughtered cows on the walls and roofs of the temples. So this, these are some of the highlights of the riots. Now, I will quote verbatim just two personal and eyewitness accounts. So you have a clear idea of the horrible nature, the scale and the extent of the Mopla genocide of Hindus. The first is by Annie Besant, who strongly condemns Gandhi's role in directly causing it. Quote, Mr. Gandhi, can Mr. Gandhi not feel a little sympathy for thousands of women left with only rags driven from home for little children born of the flying mothers on roads in refugee camps? The misery is beyond description. Girl wives, pretty and sweet, with eyes half blind with weeping, distraught with terror. Women who have seen their husband, husbands hacked to pieces before their own eyes in the way that Moplas consider this act as religious. Old women tottering, whose faces become written with anguish and who cry at a gentle touch. Men who have lost all, hopeless, crushed, desperate. Can you conceive of a more ghastly and inhu inhuman crime than the murders of babies and pregnant women? A pregnant woman carrying seven months Baby was cut through the abdomen by a mopla and she was seen lying dead on the way with a dead child projecting out of the womb. Another, a baby of six months was snatched away from the breast of his own mother and cut into two pieces. Are these moplas human beings or monsters? A respectable Nair lady at Melatur was stripped naked by the rebels in the presence of her husband and brothers who were made to stand close by with their hands tied behind. When they shut their eyes in abhorrence, they were compelled at the point of sword to open their eyes and witness the rape committed by the brute 
in their presence. Close quote. The second is a, a it's very difficult to read that, but anyway. As a gut-wrenching appeal written by the Maharani of Nilambur and uh, signed by hundreds of Hindu women, it was addressed to Lady Reading, the wife of Viceroy Lord Reading. And I'll just read out a couple of uh, paragraphs. Uh, and if you want the full text, you can uh, visit Dharma Dispatch. I'll publish it in a couple of days. The contents of um, this letter will melt even a real stone. And I want you to close your eyes and visualize the savage scene. Here it is. The present Mopla rebellion is unexampled in its magnitude as well as unprecedented in its ferocity. The horrors and atrocities perpetrated by the fiendish Moplas of the many wells and tanks and lakes filled up with the mutilated but often only half dead bodies of our nearest and dearest ones who refused to abandon the faith of our ancestors of pregnant women cut to pieces and left on the roadside and in the jungles with unborn babes protruding from the mangled corpse. Of innocent and helpless children torn from our arms and done to death before our own eyes and of our husbands and fathers tortured, flayed and burnt alive. Of our hapless sisters forcibly carried away from the midst of their kith and kin and subjected to every shame and outrage which the vile and brutal imagination of these inhuman hellhounds could conceive of. Of thousands of our homes reduced to cinder mounds out of sheer savagery and a wanton spirit of destruction. Of our places of worship desecrated and destroyed and of the images that is Muti and of the images of the deity shamefully insulted by putting the intestines of slaughtered cows where flaga lands once used to lie or else smashed to pieces of the wholesale looting of hard-earned wealth of gener generations reducing many who were formerly rich and prosperous to publicly beg for a piece or two on the streets of Calicut to buy salt or chili or beetle leaf. These are not fables. The wells are full of rotting skeletons, the ruins which once were our homes, the heaps of stones which were once our places of worship, all these are all still there to attest to this truth. The cries of our murdered children in their death agonies are still ringing in our ears and will continue to haunt our memory till death brings us peace. We remember how we were driven out of our native hamlets. We wandered starving and naked in the jungles and forests. We remembered how we choked and stifled our babies' cries, lest the sound should betray our hiding places to our relentless pursuers. We still vividly realize the moral and spiritual agony that thousands of us passed through when we were forcibly converted into the faith professed by these bloodthirsty miscreants. Our most unhappy sisters, who were born and brought up in respectable families, have now been forcibly con uh, converted and married to convicts.
some 50 pages of this. This is the Mopla genocide of uh, Malabar Hindus uh, and uh, it is whitewashed as the Mopla rebellion and taught to our children for at least 3-4 generations. Mopla rebellion makes it sound like it was some kind of heroic fight, fight for freedom against the British. This is a crime, this whitewashing is a crime against Hindu memory. What is worse than the Mopla genocide of Hindus is the savage response given by the non-violent Mahatma Gandhi and his Congress party. This response was Gandhi's ultimate act of desecrating even the innocent dead Hindus of Malabar. He made the Congress party pass a resolution in the Ahmedabad session of December 1921. Let me read out the relevant part. The Congress expresses its firm conviction that the Mopla disturbance was not due to non-cooperation or the Khilafat movement. He says that the Congress expresses its firm conviction that the Mopla disturbance was not due to the Khilafat movement. What is it due to? It is due to causes wholly unconnected with the Khilafat movement and that the violence would not have occurred had the message of non-violence been allowed to reach them. Nevertheless, this Congress is of the opinion that the disturbance in Malabar could have been prevented by the government of Madras accepting the proffered assistance of Maulana Yaqub Hassan, Gandhi's dear, one of Gandhi's dear friends. Now, who is this Maulana Yaqub Hassan? He was one of the more violent preachers in the run-up to the so-called Khilafat movement. So Gandhi actually expected that this Maulana Yaqub Hassan would pass on the message of non-violence to the Malabar Muslims. So, but what is worse, Gandhi and this Congress did not utter a single word to condemn either the Ali brothers or the entire gang of Khilafat supporters. Not a single word of condemnation from him. But on their part, like I said, the Ali brothers or the other Khilafat leaders, they had no sympathy for the genocide of the Malabar Hindus by the, their own brothers, the Moplas. In fact, they justified it. I'll give you a very representative sample of how this justification worked. His name is by a gentleman named Hasrat Mohani. Hasrat Mohani, I'll come to him later, but yeah. He addressed a Muslim League conference after the genocide and he claimed that the Mopla Muslims who massacred the Hindus did so because they were frightened of the English detachment in the locality. These are his words. English detachment meaning army contingent. And therefore, they assumed that the Hindus had invited the army contingent. Therefore, these Darahua Muslims, in today's context, they thought that, you know, let's have fun and wipe out all these Hindus. So, 
I'll also share a small uh, tidbit about this Hasrat Mohani. After independence, uh, he is a guy who supposedly gave us the cry in Kilab Zindabad or something. So, this Hasrat Mohani, after independence, became very, very dear to Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru and his secular gang, and they put him in the gallery of freedom fighters. As recent as February 2014, former Vice President Hamid Ansari released a postage stamp to honor the contribution of Hasrat Mohani. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about you know where we have reached with all this. So, but then back to Gandhi. Uh, all Hindus were neither fooled nor were they cowardly enough to not condemn him. They called this bluff repeatedly and I'll, uh, because it's relevant here, a group of extremely courageous Hindus from Kerala, I read out their names, Keshava Menon, K. Madhavan Nair, Karunakara Menon and K. V. Gopala Menon, all from Kerala, they wrote an open letter to Gandhi and I'll read out some uh, portions of uh, this letter. It's extraordinary in many ways. Truth is infinitely of more paramount importance than Hindu-Muslim unity or Swaraj. And therefore, we tell the Maulana Sahib, that is Hasrat Mohani, therefore, we tell the Maulana Sahib and his co-religionists and India's revered leader Mahatma Gandhi, if he is too unaware of the events here, that the atrocities committed by the Moplas on the Hindus are unfortunately too true and there is nothing in the deeds of the Moplas which a true non-violent person can congratulate them for. Extraordinary sarcasm. What is it for which the Moplas deserve a congratulation? Their wanton and unprovoked attack on the Hindus, the all but wholesale looting of their houses in Ernad and parts of Valuvanad, Ponani and different taluks of Calicut, the forcible conversion of Hindus, uh, a wholesale conversion of those who stick to their homes, the brutal murder of inoffensive Hindus, men, women and children in cold blood without the slightest reason except that they are Kafirs. Did the Moplas who commit such atrocities sacrifice their lives in the cause of their religion? And now I ask you uh, and myself a few questions. So, why is none of this history taught to our children? The most basic question. And two, how many educated adults, and I include myself in that, are even aware of this history? This is recent history. And in two years, that is 2021, this gruesome history will complete one full century. What has happened to Hindus that they seem to be stuck in a permanent state of amnesia about their own ancestors who sacrificed so much and expected nothing in return except to continue their ancestral way of life, their traditions and customs. I know these might come across as um, strong words, but these are not my words. I've borrowed them directly from uh, that letter which says, that truth is infinitely more of paramount importance than Hindu-Muslim unity or anything else.
So I'll take a couple of uh, minutes more before I conclude my address. Uh, and uh, there's no fitting conclusion uh, to this on this topic than by reading out uh, two more passages. The first again is by the same Maharani of Nilambur. It is her appeal and you should admire the moral and mental strength and spiritual courage in this letter. She says, Our misery will not be rendered less by inflicting a similar misery upon this barbarous and savage race. Our dead will not return to us if their slayers are slaughtered. We would not be human, however, if we could ever forget the cruel and shameful outrages and indignities perpetrated upon us by a race to whom we have always endeavoured to be friendly and neighbourly. However, we would be imbecile if knowing that the ungovernable antisocial propensities and the deadly religious fanaticism of the Mopla race, we did not entreat the just and the powerful government to protect the lives and honour of your humble sisters. The second is an even more moving account told by Annie Besant when she visited the relief camps and I will read it out. Two Pulayas, the lowest of the submerged classes, they used to call the lower classes submerged classes. So two Pulayas, the lowest of the submerged classes were captured alive with others and given the choice between Islam and death. These, the outcasts of Hinduism, the untouchables, so loved their Hinduism so much that they chose to die as Hindus rather than to live as Muslims. So, 68 years later, the Mopla genocide of Hindus in Malabar would repeat in the Kashmir Valley, exactly 68 years later, with obviously the same consequences. And this time, the genocide has happened under the active watch of the successive governments of independent India. And even worse, its contemporary history has been buried before our very eyes.